Now listen, God is a God who is equitable. And the means that he uses to judge a real person known as Antichrist is the same means by which he will judge the lost of all time. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the middle of a series of programs entitled God's Panorama of Future Events, in which Pastor Carl is looking at the seventh chapter of Daniel, a chapter which is rich in prophecy. As we return to our study today, verse 10 tells us the books were open. Dr. Brogy explains that a day of judgment is coming and that God who sees everything we do and say will be just when he pronounces judgment on those who have not put their trust in him to save them from hell. Now God has a book, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and in it are all the forgiven people for all of eternity. But then he has the books documenting the sins of the lost by which he will ultimately judge them. Which brings us from the judgment of Jehovah to the burning of the beast. Now listen, God is a God who is equitable. And the means that he uses to judge a real person known as Antichrist is the same means by which he will judge the lost of all time. So that brings us here in verse 11 where this scene shifts once again from the one doing the judging to the beast or the Antichrist who's about to be judged. And we find here in verse 11 first something about the destruction of this fourth beast. The destruction. Here comes Mr. Big Mouth. Look at him in verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of boastful words which the horn was speaking. Daniel said, I kept looking because of what I heard. Looking because of the words which the horn, the little horn, the Antichrist was speaking. And modern vernacular, he's basically saying, I can hardly believe my ears. Here, God gives Daniel a vision, and all of a sudden, he changes the channel where he moves from being the judge of all men And he changes the dream, and he comes back to this antichrist. And he said, I kept listening. I just couldn't believe the boastful, arrogant, blasphemous words of this beast. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And Mr. Big Mouth will shoot off his mouth, but his day is coming. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now, right now, this moment, For the Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord. For the unbeliever, absent from the body, present in a place referred to as Hades. Hades is an awful place. Jesus described it in Luke 16. It is a place of fire, but it's not the final place. Hades is then incorporated in the end, according to Revelation 20, into the lake of fire. The first one to go into the lake of fire is the false prophet. Now, I should say parenthetically that this is a favorite verse of the Jehovah's Witness, another cult, and many liberals. We got liberals now who are writing on evangelical presses like Rob Bell. He's a heretic. And I got letters crucifying me for saying it in other parts of the country when I went on the air and they were listening to me in New England. Oh, he just spoke at our conference in New England. He's a wonderful man. He's a heretic. And now he confesses he's a heretic. He rejects Jesus. He performs homosexual marriages, and now he's Oprah's pastor. Nonetheless, the liberals love this verse. 
They love this kind of stuff to teach the doctrine of annihilationism. They say, when you die, you're just extinguished. That's it. You end in the grave and it's all over. People tell me that sometimes. I'm just going to die and that's it. There's no life after. How wrong they are. They are denying the dictates of their own heart because eternity, the scripture says, has been written into their heart. Now understand, if you die and you go to hell, you're not suited to go to hell on the body that you have. God is going to raise up your body after you leave Hades, give you a resurrection body, and ultimately put it in the lake of fire. Remember what Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, notice the word deeds in both cases italicized, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, don't get confused in thinking that there's going to be one big general revelation, a uh, resurrection where all the men of all time, believers and unbelievers, are judged together. Revelation is very clear in the 20th chapter that those who are there are the lost only. Jesus is not dealing here with the time of resurrection. He's dealing with the kind of resurrection. There is going to be two kinds of resurrection. A resurrection to life for those who did the good, deeds italicized but implied because their deeds prove, their fruit gives evidences that they have been born again. And those who did evil to a resurrection of judgment. Look, this body is not suited to walk on streets of gold. I have a fallen body with a sin nature right now. God is going to give me a glorious body. This mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on imperishable body. And neither is a man's body suited for hell. Because if you were dropped into hell, you would be immediately extinguished. So God will give the unbelieving lost of all time a resurrection body that will literally actually feel pain, but will never ever be consumed. Revelation 19, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the 20th verse, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he would deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Would you circle that word in your mind, alive? The false prophet and the antichrist the beast were thrown alive now at the coming of christ the bible says he is slain with the breath of his mouth but god will give him a specially prepared new body to go into the lake of fire in fact we're told a thousand years after the beast and the false prophet go into the lake of fire, and at the end of the millennial reign, when the devil is loose and he's thrown in there, the beast and the false prophet are still burning. Listen to these words. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Please note the tense. He describes the state of this beast and this false prophet that they are also, not were, but are also in this lake of fire where they will burn and be tormented forever and ever and ever. 
Listen, if you study the context very carefully, you discover that there's a thousand years between the time the beast and the false prophet and the devil is thrown in there, and they are not annihilated, they are there burning. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think the fire is literal or symbolic? Friend, God said fire, so that's what I say. But for those who misinterpret this text and say that this is somehow symbolic, let me tell you, the symbol is always weaker than the reality. You see a picture of a sunset, it is never as magnificent and real and powerful to actually look at a real sunset. And in the original language, in all the other places in the Word of God, God never uses metaphorical language to describe hell. God doesn't want you to go there. He didn't prepare this place for humans. He originally prepared it for the devil and his angels. But my friend, if you die and go there, it will be no one's fault but yours. Because God provided a way of escape. His son didn't deal with some of your sin, but all of it. And if you will flee the wrath of God and come to Jesus Christ, he will save you. So there's the destruction of the fourth beast, but there is the destruction of the former beast. Look now at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, who are these beasts? Well, we've already discovered the first three beasts and the first three kingdoms. Babylon was taken over by Medio Persia. The Medo-Persian Empire was overthrown by Greece, and Greece ultimately overthrew Rome. But they continued to exist in some form, and that they were absorbed into these other empires. And the point of verse 12 is that the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Grecian empires, were to some extent continuing on in the final empire. That's what we studied in Daniel 2. Do you remember? Let me refresh your memory. Daniel 2, 44. And the days of those kings, plural, kings signify kingdoms, plural. And the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now listen carefully to the next verse. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the silver, the and the gold, remember that? That smiting stone, a picture of the Messiah who will come and put an end to the kingdoms of these world. So these other kingdoms are absorbed into this fourth kingdom. And when this king comes, representing a kingdom made without human hands, he will smush all the nations of the world. Look at verse 12 with that in mind. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So there's a sense in which all these nations, represented by each succeeding empire, have an extension of life for an appointed period of time. And when will this appointed period of time end? Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. All the nations seen in these final empire, this revived Roman empire, they're going to gather together. Now, we call it the Battle of Armageddon, but my professor at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Pentecost, would repeatedly remind me, 
It was not the battle of Armageddon. It's called the war of Armageddon. It's not a single battle. Now, there is an important battle. We'll stand on the field called Megiddo where we will see a great battle that is going to take place. But there's a series of battles. And the final battle happens there in Jerusalem. Messiah is coming back to the Mount of Olives. He will put his feet literally on that mountain. And all the nations of the world are going to come probably to shoot him and nuke him out of the sky. But it ain't going to happen, my friend. He is going to crush the nations of this world. And it's going to happen according to the Scripture, according to the appointed period of time. People ask me, why doesn't God just shut it all up and close up this mess? Because it's not the appointed period of time yet. Why doesn't God just kill the devil? Because it's not the appointed period of time God has it in control. It is all on his timetable. And when you understand that, you can lay your head on the pillow at night and sleep sound. Listen, in this vision, we've considered the nature of the nations. We've considered the advent of the Antichrist, the judgment of the nations, the burning of the beast. Finally, I want you to think about the crowning of the Messiah, the crowning of the Messiah. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one coming like a son of man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Two truths about the crowning of the Messiah. First, the presentation of Messiah. What we find in this portion of the vision is the one who will carry out the sentence of judgment. The Father decrees it, but as the New Testament says, all judgment has been given unto the Son. The Son carries it out. And so verse 13 indicates here a vision where the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days. Now please understand that the Son of Man found only once in the Old Testament is a messianic term. It's a reference to the fact that a baby would be born and the baby's name would be called Mighty God. That God would take on our humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used any one times in the New Testament, only of the Lord Jesus. It's a very important title that reflects both his glory and his humility. Three key titles given of Jesus. Son of man, son of David, son of God. Son of man refers to his humanity. Son of God refers to his deity. Son of David, that's his Jewish name. That refers to his royalty. And in many verses, all three are described. Let me give an example. Isaiah 9, 6. It describes my Messiah's person really giving us three pictures. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's his humanity. That's his title, son of man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That speaks of his royalty. That's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, when the son of David will come and rule forever and ever on his throne. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That speaks of his deity. And for a Jew to mention one, was to embrace all three. If you said son of man, then you immediately said, then this person is saying he's the son of David, that he is the son of God. That term, son of man, implied deity. Do you remember on that occasion when Caiaphas put the Lord Jesus under oath? He said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. And so when asked, are you the Son of God? He said, yes, I'm the Son of Man. He quotes the passage we're studying today, Daniel 7, 13. You have said it yourself. 
Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds in heaven. Jesus claimed that he is the person spoken of here in Daniel chapter 7. And because the high priest believed the Son of Man was the Son of God, he tore his robes and he said, you have committed blasphemy. So let's read Daniel again with that in mind. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. By the way, clouds are always a picture of deity in the Bible. When Christ is, uh, or when the children of Israel are going through the deserts for 40 years, they are led by a cloud by day. When the Lord Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, the Father appears in a cloud. When Christ uh, is on the um, uh, 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 Mount of Olives, when he comes back to that place, the Bible says he's coming back with clouds. When he's ascended into heaven, he goes in clouds. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. It's a picture of what we're reading here. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. You cannot convince me for a moment that the Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. We're going to see in a few weeks some Trinitarian passages where all three members are mentioned in the Old Testament in one verse. Here two members of the Godhead are mentioned. God the Son here called God the Man is presented to the God, God the Father, the Ancient of Days. That brings us finally to the proclamation of the Messiah in verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. God originally said to Adam, let him have dominion. But if you remember, Adam lost that dominion when he sinned, and the devil became the small g, the god of this world. He was given the kingdoms of this world. And so it was a real legitimate offer there in the wilderness where he said to the Lord Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because they were his to give. But Jesus went to the cross and recaptured those kingdoms and Christ refused Satan's offer, but there's coming a man who will not refuse and his name is called the Antichrist. But there's coming a day when what is Messiah's will be fully realized. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations of every language might serve him. There's not one word for serve in Hebrew that can capture it in English. Some of your translations say that they might worship him. You worship only God, but the Son of Man is God. And let me just say, our worship is not just when we come here and sing some hymns and read the Bible and give our tithes. Oh, that's an important part of it. But that's a small part of it. Most of your worship as a holy and living sacrifice takes place 24-7 outside of the confines of this room when we are not assembled. Daniel adds, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is one with authority and power. And when does all this happen? Matthew 24 says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. 
Revelation eleven fifteen, in the same way as Matthew puts it at the second coming. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. We're going to have to hold it off there. You can just write to be continued. But let me give you a couple of applications as we close. Number one, any true study of prophecy should always lead us to action. Two critical applications here. One concerns action. The other concerns rest. Look, there are a lot of Christians today who I call prophecy nuts. And all their prophetic studies do is produce a carnal excitement. But listen, if your study of the Word of God, the prophetic passages, do not translate into service and worship of the Lord God, then you've only filled your head with knowledge and you've not really understood. I talk to people who have their heads in the clouds of prophecy, but they have not translated that prophecy into a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel's response. We'll come to it next week. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. Why is he so burdened? You see, there's something about prophecy that is sweet in your mouth, but it is bitter in your belly. If you really understand it. Listen, friends, when you understand the coming judgment of God Almighty, on the one hand, it will make you excited. On the other hand, it will make you compassionate. If you really understand prophecy, you will care about doing evangelism. You won't come up with your lame little excuses that it's not my job, I don't get paid to do it, it's not my gift. You will obey the living God. Peter says, when he speaks of the judgment on the unsaved, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct, and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, it should lead you to service and worship of Christ. Secondly, I learned that it should not only lead us to action, but any true study of prophecy should lead us to rest. Many years ago, after my wife had delivered our second son, we had just come home from the hospital, and we were watching the news, and it was just so discouraging. And she was holding our little newborn, Jordan, and it just, I mean, you know, look, I didn't have the baby. I don't get the blues. But I was blue. I thought, what kind of a world are we bringing this little kid into? And I want to tell you, it's gotten a thousand times worse since that day. And her grandmother, who was with us, reminded us. She said, Jesus said, don't fear. These things must happen. She was simply reminding us that God is in absolute control, that this is our Father's world. He knows what He is about. He knows what He is doing. He said, not even a sparrow is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear because you are more valuable than sparrows. Let me conclude by reading Psalm 2. It's a magnificent psalm. It's a perfect picture of what we've just studied, where the Son of Man has given the kingdoms of this world. 
And in this psalm, you hear the different voices. First, the voice of the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord. They're doing that every day in state houses, ruling things that are immoral, is okay, is legitimate. They take their stand against God's anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. That's what this godless world is doing concerning Christianity. But then you hear the voice of God in that psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the Ancient of Days installing the Son of Man as we just read. And then you hear the voice of God the Son. Listen, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth. And then the psalm closes with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord in reverence and rejoice with trembling. Friend, if you are a Christian, you can rest tonight that our Father has everything in control. But if you are here this morning and you do not know in a personal second birth, life-changing, life-transforming kind of way, the living Son of God, you should tremble if you are wise. The last verse of the psalm says, Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Now our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for what You've written. I pray today for some dear person who's listening to me here in Bluffton, in Graniteville, maybe somewhere in the world on the internet who is unsure of their salvation. Help them to know that the Lord Jesus didn't pay for some of their sin, but all of it. That He bore all of the judgment we deserve. That if they will come to the risen Lord today and call upon Him in faith, You promise whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. Would you do that, my dear friend? Would you say simply, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we thank You that this is Your world. You are sovereignly ruling and reigning, and according to the appointed time, You will come and catch up Your church, and You will unfold the events that will lead to the crowning of the Messiah. We bless You that everything that You said in this book that concerned the first coming literally actually happened. And how that gives us a sense of confidence that everything that you have said in this book concerning his return will literally actually happen. May we put our head in this book and renew our minds and our hearts with it that we might grow and change to the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Consummation of Time, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN9. And when you check us out on the internet, be sure to find a complete listing of all the resources offered along with some information about this ministry. Tomorrow we begin a look at understanding Daniel's vision as we search the scriptures. <music>